Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books in Japanese Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Takeshi Morisato. Today, I'll be talking to Hannah Kyoshinar, who is the author of Water, Wood, and Wild Things, Learning Craft and Cultivation in a Japanese Mountain Town, a book that was just published in this year, 2021, by Viking. Hello, Hannah. Hi. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, we are very much looking forward to talking with you about your new, brand new book that tells us about your wonderful experience of living and learning in a mountain town in Ishikawa Prefecture in Japan. Uh, there are things in, in this book that are so relevant, not only to my academic work, but also to personal life during the pandemic. And, you know, I can easily see us spending hours talking about things um, just on a single chapter. Uh, but before getting into the deep forest of your book, I'd like to start with a question about you. Um, could you introduce yourself by telling us about your career as a writer and how you were involved with writing a book that has landed in this Japanese studies channel? Sure. Well, I probably have a very different background than most of your academic guests. Um, I went to art school. I worked in a bike shop. I worked in restaurants. I was a bartender. I eventually became a food stylist, which means um, preparing the food for photo shoots and uh, working with a photographer to make it look beautiful for magazines and advertisements and things like that. And um, it might all sound really scattered, but for me, there was always sort of a common thread and and also just I tend to just really dive into my interests and it feels like it all kind of came together with writing this book it was like oh all these things I did finally make sense um all along I was also like writing articles and things like that and I suppose writing only became a career in the last 10 years or so um but as I explain more about the book I think it'll make sense like how how I think having um, a knowledge of food and ecologies and um, 
art and craft and working with my hands all sort of made it easier to to dive into um, learning from and, and profiling all these different folks that appear in the book. Mm-hmm. So the, the kind of organic uh, growth of different path that you took into this sort of uh, this, this book as a sort of creation of your life um, as uh, can you repeat art school and bike? Yeah. Yeah. And I also grew up on a farm. <laughs> I didn't shop? mention that, but that's right. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, there are so many different things actually involved. But sort with, of, uh, I would uh, say oh. art and food and writing mm-hmm. are sort of the, the Main themes. Focus. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Fantastic. And farming. Yeah. And so I should say too, so the book, I mean, water, wood and wild things like um, the book is about the town of Yamanaka Onsen in Ishikawa prefecture. And those are the things that sort of define the town. Those are the resources and what it's known for. And the book is really about the material culture of the town. And each chapter is about a different person who's making something, farming, cultivating, hunting, foraging. And so I spent time with each of these people over the course of months or years working for them or apprenticing to them or tagging along while they do what they do and really getting to know them and sort of be part of their world for a little bit. I, I did notice that there's a, a, a significant amount of freedom in, in your way of writing uh, in comparison with, including myself, academics. Yeah. <laughs> like the ways in which academics write have to have a certain pattern, patterns and also the footnotes and all these requirements. But I think there's a significant amount of freedom that explores the different parts of the Yamanaka. Um, but I would like to actually ask you about this, a, a kind of follow-up questions. So how, as, as a person who went through these different careers that are internally connected to your narrative that came to this project, so could you tell us the origin of this book project itself? So how did it come to be and what motivated you to, to write this book in the first place? Sure. Well, <laughs> I'm not sure how how long of a version I should tell you of this story. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, uh, yeah, <laughs> take your time, and I think I think we will grow, You know, we will see how um, these diverse backgrounds that you have actually landed in this project and then you know flourished into this uh, beautiful book. So please, please sure. take your time. Yeah. So as I mentioned, I grew up on a farm. That was in the Pacific Northwest outside Seattle. And Seattle has a really long history of immigrants from Japan really influencing the culture there in spite of the really awful injustices and hardships that were imposed on them from the beginning and the internment during World War II. There's really been a profound influence on the architecture and gardens and food culture and and farming of the Pacific Northwest. So, um, you know, that was just sort of present. And when I was in high school, as I was thinking about going to art school, I used to hang out at the Kinokuniya bookstore a lot in Seattle. And um, I really fell in love with the artwork of Yoshitomo Nara and um, Aya Takano. And so I thought, well, if this is the contemporary art that I relate to the most, then I need to start learning Japanese and I need to go to Japan someday. And so that then uh, at the end of college, I applied for a Fulbright to go and write a graphic novel about uh, bicycle culture in Japan. 
the Fulbright committee did not understand what I was proposing. <laughs> now, in retrospect, I can see that, yeah, that's not re- probably really their kind of thing. But uh, as, a, as I was researching and preparing to do the project, I made connections with all these um, bicycle-related people in Japan. I was working in a bike shop by then, and I found like somebody's name on a flyer for a bike shop. Uh, for sorry for for like a bike messenger event, and I emailed him. This turned out to be Takuya, a bike messenger in Kyoto, and he's like, "Well, you should just come stay with me and my friends in this this bike messenger house in Kyoto." So, without a Fulbright, okay, I couldn't go for a year, but I saved up enough money to go for a month, and during that month, had all sorts of amazing experiences and made some lifelong friends. So then, fast forward. 10 years or so later, eight years later, uh, I'm living in New York. I'm a food stylist. I'm still in touch with Takuya-san. And he's like, you've got to come to this town, Yamanaka. It's like this magical mountain town. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, sure, sure. Like, um, I've by then met the man that I'm going to marry. And I have my food styling career sort of going along. I don't really like have time. I, I always wanted to go back to Japan. I didn't, didn't want and like live and work, but didn't want to just go teach English. So I'd sort of been waiting for an opportunity that made sense with my career and my interests. Anyway, uh, Takuya has been telling me about Yamanaka. He's now a, a bicycle tour guide and he's like, my friend here, he's he's your age. He's in a, he's in his early thirties, and um, he has a sake bar, and he really wants to come to New York. So could you host him? I'm like, of course. You know, Takuya and his friends hosted me when I was a 22 year old <laughs> art school grad. Didn't know what I was doing. Like, of course, I'll host his friend. Meanwhile, he tells the bar own, sake bar owner Shimoki San. Um, my friends in New York really want to meet you. Can you go to New York? <laughs> yeah. So he fit anyway. the actual narrative of the setup of this entire book project. He, yeah. he set it up. He set it up. Yeah. So anyway, Shimoki-san, the bar owner, he comes to New York. He brings practically his whole bar in a suitcase, like all these bottles of sake and glassware and um, wooden cups made in Yamanaka. And I happen to have a dinner party while he's there and he's got this great apron it's a traditional typical maikake like the indigo apron with the woven strings and it's got his bars insignia on it and i'm like this apron's awesome where, where can i get one like that can i buy one and he's like well you have to come work in my bar and i'm like okay and then it's a uniform, he, basically. Though. He yeah, said it's yeah. a uniform for my <laughs> restaurants. Yeah, it's the yeah, same with the like, ramen got... noodles with a T-shirt. And yeah, right. Exactly. Right. So, yeah. so he says, you have to come work in my bar. And I say, OK. And he's like, well, then you have to come for two months. I'm like, OK. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Different and so timeline. I did. Yeah. I did. I mm-hmm. went and I apprenticed for two months in the sake bar. And that's the first chapter of the book. Um, I had been thinking I wanted to write a cookbook or some sort of food-related narrative about Japan, so that seemed like a really good entry point, that that experience would open doors, and I wasn't really sure which ones. But what I found was that I didn't want to just write a cookbook, that I was really interested in, like, well, how did all these things get to the table? And, I, you know, a bar can sort of be a community hub, and so while I was working there, I met 
wood turners. The town is really known for for its lacquerware, wood turning, and and um, all the sort of related crafts of making wooden cups and bowls. And I met somebody who was making charcoal in his abandoned village up further in the mountains. I met um, my my Japanese tutor turned out to be another artist, and we became friends very quickly. And she's also in the book, Mika Horie, who's um, a photographer and paper maker. So the the idea for the book sort of evolved from there, and this the sort of structure and categories of water, wood, wild things, and cultivation. Mm-hmm. Um, so one of the things that I wanted to ask you is, uh, it's a kind of a personal question for me, but the when I... I really love reading this book, and I wanted to recommend this book to somebody with just interest in Japan. But the how would you categorize uh, your book as a genre? Um, you know, is it kind of the personal experience of Yamanaka? Um, and I think some of the back cover reviews says that it's, it's a kind of anthropological work. But how would you see uh, your book to be uh, if you're going to introduce this book to somebody? I mean, I think it is a little hard mm-hmm. to car- categorize. I mean, <laughs> yeah. the broadest, in the broadest it terms, it's it's narrative nonfiction. A lot of bookstores seem to be putting it in the travel section, um, but I feel like you know, travel narratives kind of implies like visiting a place, like dipping in and and then leaving. And I really invested myself in becoming part of the community as much as that's possible and like really really taking taking time so um and then some people have called it like memoir which I feel is for me to call it memoir would be dishonest because these experiences didn't just happen I really sought them out as a journalist like I sought out these experiences so I could write about them and everybody that I worked with understood that that was what I was doing too. So it's definitely more journalism than memoir. I mean, yeah, it is. I don't know. How would you categorize it? You've read it. It, 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 In some ways, it reminded me of these, um, you know, um, the writing styles and the content is entirely different. But the uh, recently I had an interview with the specialist of Haruki Murakami and we talk about his nonfiction writing. So it's a little bit of like a literally essays. There's, there's a, definitely essay component to it and then your observation of of the world as you are there but at the same yeah. time there's a recollection of the life back in the united states and you know recollection of the past memories that connected to the present memories yeah there's a little bit more um sort of like the literally nonfiction, or uh they call it um reportage in Japanese, yeah, yeah, uh, it's a, it's a kind of that. There's a, there's a definitely more journalism involved, but it's not reporting um, as the facts or reporting uh, or the travel, you know, um, sections where you just read about the place and you're gonna go and enjoy it and come back and you you forget you think about next place to go. It's quite different. Yeah, yeah. From well, that. I yeah. think I, I felt like um, writing in the first person. It does a couple things. One is it creates a narrative arc, so it's just more fun for the reader and sort of carries you through the book. But also, and maybe more importantly, I think it um, it's a way to be transparent with readers about who I am and where I'm coming from and what sort of uh, preconceptions I might have. 
And it's and it's impossible to be a completely objective observer, not only because of our own ideas that we bring, but like when you insert yourself into a situation, you change the situation, um, which could be a disadvantage, but it can also, I think, be an advantage. Oftentimes in my interaction with these craftsmen and hunters and farmers, I think you learn something about their personality and character too. And so that's that's why I share those stories. Like it's definitely much more about them than me, but I think um, I hope that that adding that sort of more personal touch adds something yeah, for absolutely. the readers too. Yeah. Another things that you did uh, very distinctly in the in this book is these um, uh, uh, collection of illustrations. They are actually quite beautifully inserted into the to the book. So when you read the book, suddenly you come up with these pages that describe the things that you saw. Um, as you mentioned in the book, some of the things that some of the places that you went do not exist on the internet. <laughs> so, yeah. it, it's, and also if you don't speak Japanese or never been to that part of the world, it's very difficult for us to understand what you're talking about. But because of these visual aids, um, I think the you know it reaches a wider range of um, um, audience. I think. But I, w- I want to ask you like the um, so I have a series of questions that may help us understand their function and also your creative mm-hmm. process behind these uh, beautiful illustrations. Um, so the first question I have is why did you pick the red setter as the first illustration of this book? Um, well, in the prologue, I talk about um, when I first came here, people translating sugi as cedar and sugi are the trees you see all over, especially this part of Japan where there's a lot of forestry. And, um, so, but they didn't look like the cedar, that, which is the red cedar where I'm from in Washington state. And turns out actually neither of them are, are true cedars. <laughs> Only on, I think the Himalayas is where the true cedars are. Um, is that right? Uh, yeah, I think I might be uh, wrong I think about you, that. Yeah, you, I, I say you, it in the prologue, but I've forgotten. Absolutely. <laughs> so, but anyway, yeah. um, so, so I have illustrations in that chapter or in the prologue of both the red cedar where I'm from and then the, the sugi that you, that you see here. Um, but then, you know, I think that the way that I wanted the illustrations to function a lot of the time was to offer technical detail without the text sort of getting bogged down in that. So I show tools or plants or, um, you know, the things that, that the, I can sort of visually describe without having to take a detour in the text to do mm-hmm. that. Yeah. And, and also and it then, gives us this sort of a, you know, perspective that the, oh, these are the things that sh- um, the author is actually looking at and yeah. describing <laughs> in, in, the, in the chapter. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It's sort of a little clue of what I'm noticing and seeing too. Mm-hmm. Now, what was, was it originally in color when you actually made this sketch or did you, made these sketch with the ballpoint pen in, in black and white? I made them, they're pen and ink. They're, they're with um, actually Darita, I think is how you say it, the manga pens, um, uh, which I've loved since, again, going back to the Kinokuniya bookstore where I used to go a lot in high school, I picked those up and really just loved drawing with them. That ink is so black and, um, and I like the sort of... Uh, uh, little level of like risk involved with drawing drawing with pen and ink 
you know <laughs> you once can't once you do it it's just that's it that's it like you can't really that's control it. And, and if you press yeah. too hard and the ink bleeds or whatever or like the line is the line so um and yeah they were always black and white i think that that way they don't really compete with the text so much and um i think i i wanted them to function in a way like comics or manga too where there's when you have an image and words that like there's the meaning of the image, there's a meaning of the words, but then together they can create sort of a third meaning that isn't there with just one or the other. Yeah. But in, in contrast, it seems like the, your book is saturated with this like sentences that refer to colors, actually vivid mm-hmm. colors of nature or also this sort of, um, like ambience or life in Yamanaka. Yeah. And also your past reflections in the Washington state definitely have a lot of color references. Did you purposefully make these sort of contrast or, or, um, I think it's like, it's like the same way that when you read something, you are a little bit a participant in it. Like you have to use your imagination. And I think that's what makes reading so pleasurable is it's like the, with the, the writer, like the words on the page are giving you enough information to form an image, but you're, you're also sort of participating in forming that image. So, um, I think the black and white illustrations, it's kind of the same, like it, it leaves a little work for the viewer to do. Yeah. What was and it? And it's also cheaper to print. To, yeah. So I'm sure, you know, that was Absolutely. probably a factor. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. The publisher is like, ah, oh, we don't do colors. It would jack up the price yeah. for the uh, mass print. So absolutely they saved their uh, printing yeah. process. But it does and feel more that, like part of the text, I think, than color would feel sort of like, you know, something separate from the text or it might sort of dominate. Um, whereas the black and white feels sort of part of it. I mean, I guess the style is also like a little reminiscent of old travel logs. Um, so it was like a little bit referencing that, but also more tr- expressive or personal and, and uh, contemporary. Yeah. And I think I think that's great that you, you, you did. But I, I'm also wondering, like, did you make, I'm assuming that you made far more than you actually put in the book. Um, oh yeah for yeah definitely <laughs> was it easy I mean, especially for you working to, with yeah. pen and ink like you know some of them uh I did mess up and like you know smear the ink across the page or um I did I did sketch I would do sort of like a rough sketch with pencil and then draw on it with a pen and ink and then erase so was the selection but, process just you picking or the publisher picking or th- did any of the person that showed up in, in the book said, oh, that's a great sketch. Um, you know, you should put it into the book. Um, how was um, the process I, of... Um... I narrowed them down to show to my publisher and then uh, they were like, oh, you pick. <laughs> so I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. And then there was there were some, you know, there were certain ones I knew I wanted in each chapter and then there's like... Um, there's like a little yuzu at the end or some, some that I just gave them. And I was like, well, these are just atmospheric, like get, you know, for the designers to just put where, wherever they want. If, if right. there was some space. Where it fits into the text and all this. Mm-hmm. Uh, wow. Mm-hmm. So that's the organization. Now I have a, <clears throat> I would like to jump some topics uh, because sure. the, the, as a title suggests that the, you actually go into the section of the uh, water and wood and wild things. So I would like to actually, um, ask you questions about these categories. Yeah. And 
the section on the water, you extensively talked about your experience with this uh, uh, Yoshitomo-san, the, uh, the bartender, hmm? the bar owner. Uh, oh, Yusuke-san. Right? Yushi, Yusuke-san. Uh, Yusuke Shimoki-san, yeah. Shimoki-san, sorry. Shimoki or uh, Yusuke, Shimoki. we can call him <clears throat> either. Right. right. Yoshitomo Nara is the artist. Shimoki-san yeah. is the... There's a lot of names um, to keep track of. That's why I give everybody yeah. nicknames in the book, like the pickle guy Absolutely. or, you know... Yeah, uh, that's that's how I remember. I sh- <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And uh, I also have this personal difficulty of remembering Japanese names in, in alphabet. I never grew up reading their oh. names in alphabet. So strangely, it, yes, it doesn't really stick with, with my kanji brain. Or, yeah. Exactly. So yeah. sometimes I, I have, a um, you know, which type of Shimoki-san, you know, they, there could be different types of oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> kanji combinations. So that's the one my my, my, my difficulty. But it was so interesting to start with the uh, bar experience because it's almost like you are into this uh, craftsmanship. You know, it's not a typical bartending that I would imagine in Europe, um, especially in Europe. Um, you know, bartending job is slightly different from what you experience in Yamanaka. Yeah. And some of the things that this perfectionism and craftsmanship and, and care and all these positive side, but also... Um, you know, sake industry, and I work with some sake industry people um, in my life in Belgium as well. But yeah, also the countryside. As as someone, um, I'm I'm from Tokyo, so mm-hmm. I'm a city rat. <laughs> and from our <laughs> perspective, countryside is sort of decaying and conservative. And when yeah, I read your story, Ishikawa-ken especially is known <clears throat> for being very conservative. Exactly. And because of that, I mean, they preserve their traditional worldview and, you know, sort of the, the environment that that we can romanticize about as a good old Japan. But also have this feeling that some of the things that you experience in Yamanaka will be quite shocking or, you know, severely criticized if they took place somewhere else in North America um, or even in Europe. Do you feel... You switch your mindset when you go from New York City to Yamanaka, or there's a certain way of thinking that is operative in both worlds. So that's one question. And what helped well, you let... get through some difficulties? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, there are a lot of things you said there that I, <laughs> I would like to get it dig into. So, um, well, so I worked in the sake bar first, Shimoki-san's bar, and then I worked in a sake brewery, a sakagura uh, for Matsura-san as the owner and Toji. And definitely like in the second case, working in the Sakagura, I mean, in 14 generations, they had never had a woman or a foreigner work there. So it was quite a privilege to be allowed into that space. And then um, actually I've continued to work there now as my, I'm about to start my third season. So it started as research and just sort of became part of my life. But um, yeah, so... Oh, there's a couple parts of this. What one is, I mean, I think this is true of a lot of small towns. In some ways, it was true of my hometown too, North Bend, Washington. Um, that small towns can be very conservative and at the same time very tolerant. Like, oh, so and so, like he's kind of crazy, but we love him. Or like, oh, that Hannah, our like funny foreigner that lives here. <laughs> like, um, so so like, th- there's both sides to rural living. And then the other is, I think, um, 
It depends. Like, like sometimes I'm approaching things as a journalist, as a re- researcher. And in that case, I feel like my job is to suspend judgment, to just be present and, and listen and observe and um, be a good sport about things. And um, there's, there's a lot that I learned from that that bleeds into my personal life too, where like, yes, of course, like I am a professional American woman, a feminist, the former punk rocker or whatever, you know? So, so how I conduct myself in my personal life versus as a journalist or a researcher is maybe, maybe a little different, but I think there's a risk of I think Americans and Europeans and maybe some other folks especially tend to do this. Maybe everybody, when you go into a place of sort of bringing judgments from your own culture and being like, well, that's not how you should do things. And, um, and yeah, so it's tricky. I mean, it's a, it's a delicate balance, but certainly there are things that seem pretty clear cut, right and wrong, human rights, women's rights, whatever. But, um, yeah, progress happens at different paces and different places, and and just telling people they're wrong is not very helpful. And um, so yeah, it se- it seems like your experience at the Sakagura, the sake brewery, was sort of indicative of that image of like the you know when they just could if it was a group of just men they could just change into whatever they wanted in wherever, and then they have to prepare you a special room something right oh yeah you mean literally changing clothes right well see see i think this is a good example where it's like and i think it takes some it's important to have some sort of like empathy it's like they're used to it being just the guys like it does sort of complicate things to suddenly have a woman there right so the muro where where you make the koji um which for the listeners who are not sake geeks so koji is the rice inoculated with um, mold spores of Aspergillus orizae um, that helps, um, it basically creates enzymes that turn rice starches into sugars that can be fermented with yeast and make alcohol. So you make the koji in this warm room called the muro. Well, I guess muro just means room, but yeah, we just refer to it as the muro. And um, uh, you know, you you sprinkle the spores on the rice and then over this course of several days that grows and you sort of tend to it. And so typically the guys would just strip down to their boxer shorts and put on um, like a sometimes wear like a sort of loose open shirt uh, and or sometimes not. <laughs> and so when I came there, like it was like, OK, well, Hannah, you should wear some this, this was a very funny and embarrassing incident that I do write about in the book where, you know, they told me I should wear shorts and and there's and they gave me a T-shirt. And so I would wear like a jumpsuit to work. So I was like, OK, I'll just wear my like three quarter length running tights under my jumpsuit and the T-shirt under my jumpsuit. And then I can just peel it off because there's not really like a separate place to change. And so I did, did that and it seemed fine. Like I didn't want to make a big deal out of it. It was like, OK, this is what we do. So I'm just going along with it. And then I after a while I was like, well, everybody else is wearing like boxer shorts. Like, is it kind of weird that I'm wearing like longer pants? Is that like showing up to the swimming pool in like a t-shirt and jeans? Like maybe that's, <laughs> that's making things I, yeah. awkward, right? right? So I got yeah. myself some, <clears throat> some boxer shorts that I could wear and, mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> um, started doing that. And, uh, 
few days later, um, went out for a drink with Takuya-san, the, the bike messenger turned bike tour guide who introduced me to Yamanaka and, and Matsura-san, the owner and um, head brewer. And Matsura-san had Takuya-san explain to me, because also at this point, so my, my Japanese is conversational but not fluent, and it's gotten better in the progress of this book. And I can also talk about how I did the research without being fluent, but um, that's a digression. Anyways, he has Takuya-san sort of translating, partly for language reasons and partly just to be a buffer, um, that whatever I was wearing was like too sexy and making the guys uncomfortable. He was worried it would make the guys uncomfortable. And I was mortified. I was mortified because I was trying so hard like not to make waves and to just go along with things. And I hadn't worn anything that like I wouldn't wear to the gym in the U.S., you know, <laughs> so... Um, uh, well, to yeah, be honest so with was... you, like I think the brewery <laughs> culture, especially inside the Moodle, is almost like a company traditional secret to the point. Oh yeah. Even a regular uh, male from the city of Tokyo would be mortified to go in and and feel in the same way. So I ca- I can't imagine with the language barrier and 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 this conservative culture of gender equality and inequality, and you, you're having this conversation with the. Bike messenger. So I, I, it, was it was very, it, yeah. it was mortifying, but mm-hmm. also, you know, in retrospect, hilarious. And I have to give them credit. On the other hand, like every single person in that sake brewery really welcomed me onto the team and, and just treated me like a colleague. And, um, you know, it's pretty easy to imagine it going differently them resenting my presence or, um, yeah. I mean, I think part of that just comes from. Matsura-san, the head brewer and owner, being such a great leader and his team really trusting him. And so, like, if he if he said it was okay for me to be there, then it was okay for me to be there. And I was part of the right. team. Yeah. So there's a kind of trust amazing. relationship that uh, in, in the background of this conflict, there was always a, a kind of trust relationship that took place to facilitate this uh, team, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's sort of a lot of the things, the opportunities in the book, you know, once once I sort of knew what I wanted to include in the book, then I had to get all these people to agree to work with me. And that sort of building of trust was what allowed that to happen, too. I think it can make it very hard for outsiders in rural Japan, because if you don't know anybody, then you don't have that and no, nobody's going to let you in. But once you start to build that, it was like, well... The woodturner Nakajima-san, he 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 told Matsura-san, the sake brewer, that he trusted me. So then Matsura-san trusted me, and then people knew I worked for Matsura-san. So they thought, oh well, if Matsura-san's okay with her, then I'm okay with her. And so yeah. it really that, opened that doors. Really, it was very interesting that you actually went head on and just sort of all in for all these things that are happening in the Yamanaka, for instance, the uh, onsen culture, as well as the tea ceremony mm-hmm. uh, in, in a section of water. That it, So y- you, you actually didn't know anything about tea ceremony and just went into these tea practices uh, with, with one of your friends yeah. in Yamanaka. And it was really interesting to read this section uh, because I was working on another um, tea ceremony book. But you describe it as relational aesthetics, can you yeah. elaborate on this notion of relational aesthetics? And I think there's some sort of like a relationship between that to your experience in Yamanaka in general. Well, 
So relational aesthetics or relational art is like um, essentially art that happens not in what the artist makes, but in the sort of social interaction that they set up or facilitate, right? Like, so like the most famous example is probably, I'm probably mispronouncing his name, but Rikrit Tiravanija, um, who served noodles in a gallery. And the art is in the interaction. Uh, It's not the noodles. It's not him. So it's, it's like, I would say it's like a branch of performance art in a way but it's really more about like the social interaction that's being facilitated that's the art and so I felt like yeah that like maybe having an art background that's how I made sense of tea tea ceremony because it's this very like systematic uh, way of host and guest like making and receiving tea right but there's something really beautiful and special that and and spontaneous and genuine that somehow happens within that structure or can happen within that structure at its best. And so that was where I saw the connection that like the art is not the fancy tea or the bowls that you drink it from or the flower arrangement. It's like how all of these things create an experience and the, and the people who are present like create this experience together. There was a moment I, I remember when you're uh, learning the traditional dance, um, because of the you, your tea practice, it enables you to behave in a certain way that fit right into the group. Yeah. Um, what, what, was 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 that a sort of like ah now it makes sense that the practice actually helps other um, area, or it was just sort of natural that you already became fluent in this like body language of. Traditional well, I don't know Japanese, fluent yeah. yet, but <laughs> conversational, competent, maybe, conversational. yeah, conversational, yeah. probably same yeah. as my language, but, uh, yeah. but, yeah, well, part of the appeal from the beginning for learning mm-hmm. tea for me is was like, oh, okay, well, maybe if I do that, I won't just be this sort of like klutz bumbling around. I just feel like Westerners take up so much more space, and then I don't just mean physically; I just mean like our way of moving through the world and like, um particularly as you sort of pointed out in a more sort of traditional or conservative place like Yamanaka. So I was sort of hoping to just get a little less clumsy, a little more, a little more graceful in etiquette. And, um, and so certainly that, that helped. Wait, I forget. There was something else you asked where, where I was going with this, the connection to dance and, uh maybe it's a kind of oh i know um, what i was gonna say i know what i was gonna say so also it's like um that carefulness that shimoki-san uses in his bar where like everything is sort of choreographed and deliberate or even in the sakagura where it's like the cleaning is just as important as like making the sake you know mixing the ingredients of the sake seemed related to tea ceremony. I mean, I think it's also like Buddhism and Taoism probably being part of tea ceremony. And so I was, I was interpreting it maybe as, as tea being in all these other parts of life, but it may more sort of be like the common influence of Buddhism. But I think tea is a really good sort of easy entry point to that or way to understand it in a very like day to day kind of way yeah. 
I have a little bit of cushion question um, that's more like overarching the whole project. But how did you find, well, how did you, how was your writing process throughout these different experiences of working at the <laughs> cafe or you working at, you know, going to the tea ceremony, going to onsen? Did you actually carry around uh, your pen and note or laptop or, or you try to recollect everything? And write them down. So I'm I'm curious about this writing process. So there were sort of three strands of the research and writing, and then the illustrations also kind of happening happening simultaneously. So yeah, um, often a lot of the experiences that I was writing about overlapped. I mean, I I worked on the book over the course of about five years, but then actually a year and a half straight of living in Yamanaka. Before that, I was sort of coming and going. Um, but there were the experiences, obviously, like, uh, working in the sake, sake brewery, taking dance lessons, tea ceremony practice, um, growing rice, (laughs) growing vegetables, (laughs) uh, (laughs) following hunters, all these things. Yeah. Fighting, fighting wild boars and all this. Yeah, so I was absolutely, I always yeah. had a notebook mm. in my pocket. I had like those the, like Muji makes these little great like passport mo- notebooks they call them. They're the size of a passport and I could stuff that in my pocket and I usually had like a I have my have big fluffy hair that's up in a bun a lot of the time and the pencil stuck through it or you know a little another pencil usually in my pocket and <laughs> I was just always taking notes. Um and then I was taking notes at the end of the day, too. I have notebooks in every room of my house, so I couldn't be lazy. If something popped into my head, um, I would write it down. And at the end of every day, I'd sort of try to, like, note some things that, you know, what 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 I'd done and observed that day. Um, and people have commented. They're like, you, there's so much, like, detail. How did you remember it all? It's like, I did it. I wrote it down. <laughs> so I can go back and find it material. later. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, yeah. so that was the first strand was the experiences. And then there was, like, more sort of typical research, research, like, books and libraries and things. And for that, my friend, uh, Yu Mizukami, worked with me. Um, he's from... Ishikawa from a few few towns over from Yamanaka, and he actually did his own ethnographic research on Yamanaka craftsmen. But he lives in Tokyo now, so he was just like had sort of he was just the perfect person because he knows this area, he knows the local culture and history. But um, he was also in Tokyo where he had access to things like the National Diet Library and um, uh, just all sorts of stuff. Um, university libraries and things yeah and so um and uh I don't read Japanese well so I and I didn't want that to be a limitation so I would get things like uh, someone gave me a book that was like an entire history of this one of Yamanaka's like outer villages you know or I found (laughs) this series put out by Ishikawa prefecture of like five books of Ishikawa history or these like food food books about Ishikawa so I'd mail those to him and then for each chapter as I was writing it I would sort of come up with questions I had about history or sort of statistics and data that I wanted to include and I would send him this whole list of questions and then he'd get back to me with like little summaries and then I'd say okay I want to know more about that and so that's how we kind of collaborated on the research 
Yeah. And then so, <laughs> there's one more part, the yeah, third ahead, strand. The third mm-hmm. strand was then then interviews. So interviews, uh, yeah. after I sort of felt that the experience part of each chapter was was done, that I'd done enough to be ready to write the chapter, then either with um, Mizukami-san or um, another friend, I would sit down with the person that I was writing about and, and do an interview um, uh, where I could confirm things that I thought I'd understood, but just making sure with somebody who's like a native speaker that yes, I had understood it correctly. And I could ask the questions that, you know, I, I didn't know how to ask. I see. So, right. Those so were you, the three you had parts. the intellectual help from this um, uh, Ms. Kamisan to yeah, make sure that the re- all the information like is on. Research. Yeah. 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 That's a fantastic um, way to make sure that the what you understood is exactly what happened uh, in, in this first-hand experience. Um, well, and I know, really thought it was important to include the historical and cultural context around all these things. I mean, that's part of what makes them so interesting, you know, not just like, oh, I went and do, did this cool thing. The point was like, how do all these things weave together into the local culture and community and why? You know, so this is uh, my another question about this local economy, sort of the sustainable development and in the future mm-hmm. rural, rural economy and a culture in Japan. So there's a sense of you diving into this long traditional crafts and, and art. But at the same time, there's a sense that there's crumbling economy and, you know, uh, seriously aging society in rural Japan. Yeah. Do, do you feel that these traditions and, and a rural economy will even like will survive no matter what? Or do you feel that there's a sort of danger that these things will be uh, gone? For instance, you know, the example is like the um, the, the, the image of crumbling pen cap. You know, you went to this, you needed to buy this pen and you bought this pen from this, uh, are they still open? I can't believe they're still selling pen. And then the cap kind of crumbles. Yeah, right. Think, so this, there was yeah, this little think, stationery store that had been probably yeah. hadn't renewed their inventory in a decade, and and I bought this marker, <laughs> exactly. and this, and this the cap just crumbled as soon as I got it home. Yeah, I, and, I grew up with the you know the uh, family members from Kyoto and Osaka, and they lived in the countryside, and then we went to these places, but they are all closed now. So yeah. I, I, I'm wondering. Well, that store has since closed, and there's a closed. bookstore that's like boarded up. Yeah, so. Definitely. I mean, the population is, you know, concentrating into cities and the rural population is shrinking and aging. And um, but I think there's this tendency with some foreigners to want to be like the white savior and like, oh, I understand the value of your culture better than you do. And I'm going to preserve these precious things. And like, Look, I mean, there is value in the perspective of an outsider. Like, I'm sure there are things that somebody who's not American can appreciate about American culture that I don't even notice, that I just take for granted. So I think there is value of in, in that outsider perspective, but it's also kind of gross and rude to like come in and like tell people that you know the value of their culture better than, than they do. So, um, I didn't I don't want to do that. But the other thing is that it's like there are young people who are coming, especially here to Yamanaka, I think because of its very long craft tradition and because the onsen 
um, creates tourism, but it's, you know, like over a thousand years of tourism. So it, the tourism doesn't really spoil it. It's, it's just the town is somehow so manages it in a way that it's like it enriches the culture instead of mm-hmm. um, yeah, like, um, through it spoiling it. it. Um, exactly making it so, genetic and then almost like look like the same as own like it looks like yeah. airport right yeah. <laughs> yeah 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 so it does yeah, yeah that, that hasn't happened at all it still has a really mm-hmm. unique character and and so there's like a wood turning school here where young people come to learn wood turning and become lacquerware crafts people um and i think there there is an appeal to young people who want to sort of live a more alternative life or artists who need space people who want to start farms Mm-hmm. So, so there's a kind of know, resilience of the younger generations that might is. carry the torch. Yeah. And then the other I thing see. is, I mean, Nakashima-san, Takehito Nakashima, who's the mm-hmm. wood turner that I write about. I mean, you know, he says it's like, well, tradition, I'm totally paraphrasing here, but basically he points out that tradition's not static. Like we're making things now that will be conti- considered traditional a hundred years from now. And, you know, he's right. I mean, if everything we consider traditional was new at some point so it's hard it's sad and painful to watch traditions fade and i think there are traditions worth saving but um you know they need to change too and i think particularly as a woman or i think for anybody who's like uh of an ethnicity that has been historically oppressed like it's hard to be too sentimental about the past. I mean, there's, there's, there are, there are, there are things that are worth preserving, but there are also parts that are not so great. The exclusion of women or um, racism or xenophobia that exists within certain parts of the culture. So um, I'm very interested in like, how can you preserve and carry forward the, the, the valuable and interesting parts of a tradition while also adapting it to our modern lives and ideas. And, and I think that actually almost every single person in the book is in some way offering an answer to how you do that. Right. Yeah. It's, it's, especially your relationship with Nakajima, um, with the wood-turning um, master, he doesn't strike us he does strike us as the you know classical craftsmen that do the same thing over and over and over again, but at the same no, time he no. seems to be quite flexible in terms of interactions and communications and and how to make things. Uh, but I, I was also interested because your relationship with the Nakajima-san and students that come in from Japan to go into his classes, mm-hmm. there's. A s- certain differences between the relationship of him as a teacher to, to these students and also him as a, a kind of, um, uh, it's not tomodachi, it's not friends, but it's 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 a kind of a master and apprentices relationship that you had with him, but slightly different from these uh, other students. And then yeah, also you I mentioned mean, this, uh, yeah, go ahead. Well, my, I mean, I think at this point, maybe Tomodachi is the relationship. He's one of my best friends here. But <laughs> I became but, uh, three years but, Yeah, but. Yeah, well, five now, I think, that I've been coming here. But, um, but I mean, that is kind of the difference between me and his students. Like, I guess early on, sure, maybe instead of a friend, I was more of a guest, even though he was teaching me 
I wasn't his apprentice and there was less of a hierarchy. It was almost more like we were on parallel tracks and in different worlds. I mean, obviously age hierarchies are are more important here than they are in other places. So there's a certain amount of respect or deference expected to folks older than oneself. But um, yeah, so... Does, do you feel already too, but... like, yeah, do you feel you are like a completely a part of the community right now or do you still feel a little bit of estrangement or distance? <laughs> okay, from, so here's the yeah. best example. So yeah. um, every Sunday morning, there's a little market in front of the onsen, in front of the public baths, where it's kind of like a little farmer's market, but really it's just for like the older people to get together and drink coffee. It's from 6 a.m. to 8 a.m. every Sunday morning. And um, the coffee is free for tourists. And it's, uh, I don't know, like Hyakuen or something for uh, for locals. So locals pay. It's free for tourists. So if I don't show up at the market for a few weeks, people will ask about me, like, Hannah, where, you've, where have you been? I'm sort of part of it. But I'm still not allowed to pay for my coffee. <laughs> is, is it because you're like honorary honorary locals yeah well yeah you might have to come up with a different uh, <laughs> so right. yeah uh, there are definitely ways in which i i am mm-hmm. exceptional or different or or you know it's sometimes it's, it's it's a privilege and advantage too it opens certain doors or i'm free of certain expectations uh but it, it can also um be like oh yeah you're like you're just we love you we want you here but you're mm-hmm. not quite one of us <laughs> um, <laughs> so you can't pay the local uh, local but, yeah, local coffee but, fee. but but yeah i think mm-hmm. it really depends on, on on the context i mean i'm i'm still here in yamanaka i'm still going back and forth to new york because my husband's work keeps him in new york um Ironically, he's Japanese working in the U.S. and I'm American working in Japan. But, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I mean, I I got a house here I, that I'm working on, and I I'm still working part time at the sake brewery, and um, I've really made an effort all along to to participate in the community. So, um, uh, yeah. Well, anyway, I think that market did, example is absolutely <laughs> pretty. Did, did, says did you a lot. also, you know, you, you also include these uh, amazing recipes in, into the end of every chapter of your book, and I have a feeling that some of these recipes you actually learn as you are living your life there. Yeah. Um, okay, and 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 I would like to ask you about the selection process. I'm pretty sure from these local uh, Yamanaka. Uh, people that you you learn more recipe than um, uh, the collections in in, in your book. Did, what was the selection process? If you had any, and how did you choose? Like this is the best recipe for this chapter. Yeah, well, so the recipes function in a way like the illustrations, where it's like an opportunity to add another layer of meaning, or it's like with the recipes, I get to tell like a little anecdote that maybe doesn't fit neatly into the chapter, into the narrative arc of the chapter or the sort of themes of the chapter, but is sort of a nice little tangent. And so, um, but because the book is narrative nonfiction or, um, you know, more of a literary book, not a cookbook, I didn't really have to think about like, 
are these recipes practical? Is it easy to find these ingredients? Are people going to re- be able to reproduce this? Because um, sometimes I think it's kind of a shame. Like there are there are things that I'm interested in and I'd like to know how they're made, even if I can't make them back in the U.S. Um, and I, I so I assume there are other people <laughs> like me who are just curious about how things are made, even if they're not necessarily going to cook it. And so... It's interesting and worthwhile to preserve and document those local recipes. So so some of the recipes kind of have more of that function, like just documenting. Um, but then there are also ones where it's like, you know, the fried chicken or the duck and scallion skewers or, uh, you know, there's, there's ones that are that are quite doable that somebody can make at home and sort of, you know, maybe... Most people, people aren't going to be able to replicate most of the experiences that I had in the book, but that they can do. Right. So the cooking section is definitely something that you can actually replicate wherever you're reading this book. Yeah. yeah. Some, of, some of them with more work than others. <laughs> yeah. Uh, now, I, I would like to go back to this uh, craftsmanship and yeah. sort of contrast between this artist that you had this friend who studied art in London and came to Yamanaka to make these beautiful paper-based uh, photo, photo print. Uh, I'm not sure if yeah. I'm yeah. Yeah, so that's Mika Horie. She makes, she does, there are cyanotype prints that she does on handmade gumpy paper. She harvests the gumpy shrubs in the mountains here and makes the paper and then takes photos of the landscape and then process them, processes them as cyanotypes. So basically you, you paint mineral salts onto the paper and put a, a negative or just a, anything um, that will block light and expose them in the sunlight. Mm-hmm. So you have this craftsman that make wood turning, um, master craftsman, and then you have these young uh, London studied artists, both living in yeah. Yamanaka. And you have a very different types of art. And on the one hand, it seems like it's just the craftsmanship. So you have to make, replicate the same thing over and over and over again. And then on the other hand, artists seems to be much more interested in this sort of originality and deviations from the stereotypes. Mm-hmm. But at the end, it seems like there's a common thread or some kind of um, similarity between them that I felt from reading your book. Do, do you feel, yeah. do you have something to say about these uh, two types of artists? Um, how you see yeah. them? And, yeah. Well, I mean, one thing that really struck me is how it, in the West, I think there's more hierarchy between art and craft, right? Like, like art is more sophisticated. Craft is more of a product or a hobby. Um, And I don't think that that's the case so much in Japan. I mean, I think that craft can be just as respected as art, especially dento koge, like traditional high crafts, um, you know, that that they're very, very respected. But there is the expectation that a craftsman will, um, yeah, make the same thing over and over again or sort of continue a tradition, not necessarily innovate. and, And artists are more free to be expressive. And so I think, I mean, Nakashima-san and Mika-san are sort of like opposite sides of that. He's a craftsman who's 
pushing the boundaries of crafts, sometimes to people's dismay. <laughs> He's still working within craft. He wants to consider himself a craftsman, but also an artist where he is trying to be a little bit more expressive within still making a functional object. And Mika, on the other hand, she's an artist who's using craft. I mean, Yamanaka is not a paper making town. It used to be a place where people like little, like, especially like kids, like school age boys would like harvest the gumpy and sell it to the next prefecture over to Ehime where they, they, uh, not Ehime, sorry, Echizen, uh, to, to Fukui where they make paper. Um, and so, um, but this isn't like a paper making town. And so, Mika wanted to make her own paper because she felt that the paper made by craftspeople, she, so she was a photographer first, but she got interested in printing her work on handmade paper. But she thought, oh, it's kind of a shame that like this paper is handmade, but every single sheet looks the same. So I want to make paper that is where each sheet has its own personality and the texture of the paper becomes part of the image. And mm-hmm. so she started making her own because paper. That, that's, that seemed to be the beginning of the long-lasting tradition as well. Uh, the, um, you know, for instance, wagatabon. Uh, mm-hmm. Like, can you tell us something about this uh, wagatabon? I think most of the listeners wouldn't know what it is. But no. I felt that was something that is almost like a very creative process, similar to, you know, like it shouldn't, um, it shouldn't look shouldn't identical and completely, right. yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. just just to finish talking about Mika, I think, oh, you know, she please. chose Yamanaka be- because it's not a paper making town that she wouldn't mm-hmm. have to, like, meet the expectations of, um, I see. you know, what the craft yeah. and was a little more free to be an artist. Wagataban. Well, okay. Wagataban's yeah. <laughs> well, super interesting. So mm-hmm. it's this craft that basically disappeared when a dam was built and this village was flooded and you know everybody everybody moved out before the building of the, the completion of the dam so this this upper village in Yaman, yamanaka um it uh called wagatani it used to be basically like timber for shingle making or charcoal making that and then you'd, they'd make these things and bring them back into the town and actually until about 100 years ago when there was a big fire yamanaka all the houses had uh, wooden roof tiles. Now they've all been replaced with ceramic tiles. Um, and in the winter, when it was too cold and miserable to be outside harvesting trees, you'd sit around and d- depending who you ask, it was either the scraps of wood or the best pieces of wood. You'd carve these trays called wagata bon, named, I mean, bon meaning tray and wagata from wagatani, the name of the town. So basically wagatani trays. And so... Each one is carved from a single piece of wood split from um, split sort of vertically from a section of a log. And they're carved with a chisel, so they have these ridges going across them. Um, and they're they're just beautiful. And and yeah, each one is a little bit different depending on the piece of the wood and the, the shape that that sort of determines. So um, in Wagatani, people would use them for all sorts of things for grains, for offerings on like a shrine or altar, um, for uh, serving tea, um, 
all sorts of things. But by the time, so this, there's an older man um, who was telling me about, you know, he used to live in Wagatani and he's like, oh yeah, I remember we used them as like cat dishes. <laughs> and so supposedly after they built the dam and like, and everybody moved away, nobody took the Wagatabon with them. They're just like, this is just old junk. Like we've have nice new plastic things now. And you could see Wagatabon just floating on the water once the town was flooded. So Moriguchi-san is this sculptor that found out about the craft and has revived it and has an atelier here in Yamanaka where he, he makes them. And so in his hands, I mean, he's an artist, so they really are an art form, each one a little bit different, but or, or certainly in that sort of gray area between art and craft. I mean, they're a functional, useful object, but at the same time, individual and expressive. Yeah. That would be very fascinating to see Wagatabon being used for the cat feeding dish. That's the most luxurious life. Yeah, that's the most luxurious life. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I would like to jump to the um, last category of wild things. Sure. And this section has so many things we could talk about, but um, I, I would like to point out one thing. The, the, the your experience of hunting and you know, it seems like you're describing that hunters or the the trappers to, to catch the wild boar, they seem to profoundly care about nature and, and there's a sense of responsibility towards nature. Um, but yeah. That is very counterintuitive um, to most of us who think about, you know, have the image of a hunter, especially sports hunting, they're going in and yeah. shoot deer and then just carry it home as a trophy yeah and then you eat a part of it but not all of them uh that sort of thing but your experience with them were almost like a spiritual experience can yeah. you tell us about your um you know experience with the hunting and and my understanding is that you don't like to kill animals but yeah your book seems to show that you have a profound res- respect towards hunters so I do yeah. can you tell us more about yeah this contrast or paradox yeah yeah and it definitely gave me more respect for the hunters in my hometown too I think that um, as you say for a lot of city people a lot of people around the world hunting seems like the opposite of conversation co- conservation it's the opposite of conservation you're you're killing animals um, how could that be protecting? nature. But I think that most hunters, they spend so much time observing the natural world, so much more time than most people, that they're so in tune with cycles and changes of the season and changes over time and the health of an ecosystem. And um, they are conservationists because they can't continue their sport without a healthy ecosystem. And also, I think, I mean, what I really realized is like, oh, I have so much more in common with these hunters than I thought, because most of hunting is just being outside. Like, yes, they're sometimes catching and killing things, but most of their time is just being out there observing, waiting for that right moment. And um, yeah, so, I mean, there's, especially with the Sakaami hunting, which is this really unique kind of hunting, um, it's... It's not in Yamanaka. It's actually a few towns over in Daishoji, but I included it because it's so fascinating and I followed a Yamanaka guy there. So 
it seemed okay to include it in my book about Yamanaka. And eventually, originally, well, you know, borders have changed so over time. But anyways, it's it's this this uh, method of hunting that evolved from what was really kind of like a samurai skills practice of tossing this. It's like a Y-shaped um, wood and bamboo frame uh, with a net stretched between it. And they toss this net up into the air just as the ducks are flying over at dusk and try to intersect their flight path. And if they time it right, the duck flies into the net and falls to the ground and is stunned by the fall. And then they just quickly kill it uh, with a little piece of string around its neck. And um, so they, I mean, there's a whole history that I describe in the book, but they've been like over hundreds of years really involved with the conservation of this natural area that is habitat to so many um, rare species that wouldn't thrive without places like this. So um, yeah, it's just, it's very interesting to sort of learn about the links between um, hunting and conservation on a, a global and very, very hyper-local level too. Mm-hmm. And also they have this very, you, you also mentioned how the hunters have different sense of time and seasonal changes that are much mm-hmm. more intimate to this like nature so much so that they could tell the differences of the season far more than four distinctions that we have in, 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 yeah. in the city category. Yeah. Um, and also I they mean, seem there are little changes very... that happen every day. Mm-hmm. Then they so, seem to have a the, very intimate understanding of their, uh, you know, game uh, as well. So yeah. they know about geese much better than, um, you know, people who buy the meat in, in, in a supermarket, yeah. for instance. Well, and I think yeah. it's easy to be judgmental, like, oh, they're killing animals, when realistically, like, most of us are probably killing way more animals just by the way we live, like, destroying habitat by, like, just consumerism. <laughs> so, um yeah, it's 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 more complicated. The, mm-hmm. What's right, right and it, wrong? It, and... It's it's so beautifully described, and also, you know, you have a difficulty seeing this, like the, um, uh, you know, the camels being killed, and first you are very, you know, feel sad or um, shocked by, it, but at the same time, the illustration of the camel in a later part of the book is much more detailed. You know, it, it, yeah. you spend well, I mean, quite a bit of time preparing to for get the cooking. to, like, mm-hmm. look so closely at mm-hmm. this amazing wild creature. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a very different experience from uh, going to the supermarket and see the styrofoam yeah. <laughs> with this, uh, uh, you know, clean-cut uh, meat. Um, yeah. But now, now I would like to jump to this concept of cultivation. Because mm-hmm. that seems to be the, the hunter's last experience of uh, yeah, hunter's experience of the nature is also a kind of um, cultivation. But you spend this significant amount of time with the mountain maging uh, yeah. who passed away unfortunately oh, oh, yeah. during the. This is in the wild the, things section too. Yeah, wild things. Yeah, and you have very unique experience of being able to learn about the mountain from this somebody who spent almost life understanding the the wild and through these sections i'm not sure if it's in the same section but you seem to have these connection with the plants um so you started to see plants in in yamanaka and suddenly you're remembering your life back home and almost like a self-discovery of your childhood 
how do you describe this sort of your experience of plants? It, it doesn't seem to be, you know, a biological understanding of plants or the plants that we would understand it in terms of like the interior decoration. Um, uh-huh. <laughs> there's a kind of specific understanding yeah. of plants and their connection with the memories in your book. Can you? Um, sure. I mean, that elaborate? chapter, especially like the mountain maging chapter about the uh, my wild plants teachers, especially Nishiyama sensei who passed away, um, is probably the most, is definitely the most personal chapter in the book. Um, I mean, I grew up in this place that was sort of also very wild or sort of at the edge between cultivated and wild land. And so much of my childhood was just playing in the woods and discovering all these, it just seemed like miraculous how many things there were to eat and, or, you know, useful plants in the woods, useful and edible plants in the woods. And part of what drew me so much to Yamanaka from the first moment I got here is it, it, um, the landscape is really similar to the Pacific Northwest, the moss and evergreens and ferns and sort of being in this place where you have all these different microclimates right next to each other. You have farmland and you have deep mountains and you have sea. And so amazing culinary resources and just also beautiful and diverse landscapes. So um, I sort of felt that connection right away, but then the specifics of it, it was like some of the plants I know, but a lot of these plants, I don't know what they they are. And for me, learning those plants, learning to identify things and how I could use them um, or or how they're part of this place's history, mm-hmm. just so the, deepened you're, you're, my connection to the place, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. By understanding what's actually there in, in the wild. You have sort of like communications with, with with the land and 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 the ways in which things are set up to live uh, in the yeah. local local community. Yeah, that's yeah. fantastic. Wow. Yeah, and it is really precious knowledge that um, uh, you know not a lot of people have anymore. So I was very lucky to have that teacher, and I feel almost sort of like desperate now, like. Like, I have to learn as much as I can before all these people are gone and there's nobody to learn it from anymore. But, um, yeah, Winifred Bird wrote a really amazing book about um, foraging and wild plants in Japan, though, too. So mm-hmm. there are, there, I, I remember this uh, Mountain Majin's um, uh, business card that uh, it has the title. <sighs> what was that? What was the subtitle of the business card? But it was uh, I have to go back um, to this book, too. It's. Mm-hmm. Oh, you're putting me on the spot, but it's it's <laughs> sorry. about it was the children's the... children. It's it's um oh wait it's yeah it's kind of the happiness me... for it's... the children's children or something like that. Yeah, it's cross generational oh. responsibility that he feels. I wish I want his exact words, but it's mm-hmm. going to take me too long to flip through the book and That's find okay. it. But, maybe but maybe we can ask the readers it, to yeah, make yeah, sure to go through that section. Yeah, something about sort of like like mm-hmm. like living living harmoniously with nature, and like, mm-hmm. no, it's better than that. Oh God, I want his words. Well, please please <laughs> yeah. read the chapter on Mountain Majin and remind me what I wrote. <laughs> listeners. But I, I, um, you know, but from yeah, the it, field. it is it is about like I mean, even like planting trees with him. We were helping to restore the pine trees along the coast which are really important 
um, as like a barrier against um, typhoons. And, uh, and, you know, he's like, well, we're planting these trees for the children's children. So it's like taking care of the landscape, not, you know, for people that will come far, far after us. Mm -hmm. It's taking care of the nature. We won't get to enjoy necessarily in our lifetimes, but they are important. For the future. Yeah. Yeah. It was very, very impressive business card I've ever heard about. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Usually business card is about my title and this is what I sell. You know, this is my title. This is what I'm responsible for. But his business card said, this is my responsibility is for the nature, but also the future generations of my children's children. Um, That was a fantastic. Um, I think, you know, it will be very difficult not to feel like gardening or going for hiking after reading your book. Um, But what would you like your readers to feel and do after, uh, you know, after having a taste of the experience in Yamanaka through this book? What would you expect readers um, after going through your your sentences and and passages? Well, it is definitely not a travel guide, even if it gets put in the travel section. And and, Mm -hmm. uh, I think people would have a very hard time replicating these experiences or it would cause a lot of trouble if they tried to. <laughs> suddenly um, like, many people please coming leave, to Yamanaka. leave the duck hunters alone. No, they can come to yeah. Yamanaka, buy some buy some lacquerware, <laughs> go to the onsen. But, but, you know, the book is really about paying attention to a town and, and what is the special local culture here. And that's what I hope people take away from it is not just what's so amazing and wonderful about Yamanaka, but like look closely where where you are like what what is the local culture there how does the the landscape and the things that people make and the things that they eat like how do how do all those weave together into what makes that place interesting and special too Mm -hmm. so the kind of care and cultivation that you experience should be done locally first before taking an airplane to go um to the (laughs) same place that you did for instance well i think wherever we are it's about like taking uh-huh. time and, and paying attention and mm-hmm. listening and learning. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Since uh, we are approaching the end of the interview, um, I'd like to ask you about your plans for the future. Um, I, I'm pretty sure you're going to stay in Yamanaka and take your time, but also I understand that you're working on different research at, at the moment. Um, um, can you tell yeah. us about your future plan? Well, I'm I'm working on some different articles and podcasts at the moment. Um, uh, sort of realizing that all of my work is in some way about what are people making, how do they do it, and why are they doing it. So a lot of stories about artists and farmers. Um, people will continue to see from me in various media. And then I got a kominka, an old farmhouse here in Yamanaka that I am. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. My friends nicknamed it the Totoro house because it sort of has that magic. So I'm I am gradually um, working on fixing that house and kind of turning it into an echo house or echo minka, if you will, over the next couple of years. So um, if people are on social media, they can follow that along I'm at sweets and bitters at sweets, the letter and bitters on a Instagram and Twitter and and um, people seem to like the photos of the house and <laughs> things around there. So I'll keep sharing those and um, as that project evolves. 
and then maybe turn it into a book someday or maybe picture book someday and we yeah. get to see that would be nice <laughs> we'll see what the future holds for me yeah i think um from from the reading of your book it feels like it's going to a six or seven different directions and all of them turning to something really magical um yeah that's so the problem I'm... is i want to keep doing all these things like making bagatabon <laughs> i'm still working in the sake brewery you know they expect me to show up at tea lessons I, it's like <laughs> it's a full-time job just keeping up with all my hobbies now absolutely absolutely but you know we do enjoy reading about them so please keep going with this uh, uh ongoing project and also um good luck for the forthcoming project and we are very much looking Thanks. forward to reading them and following on um Instagram and Twitter uh, on, on a face, um, um, what is it? Social networking websites. Um, yeah. So thank you so much for talking thank you. to us this about your book. And, and yeah, this is fantastic and very, very um, unusual. I think it's not very common for many of us to get to talk about Ishikawa Prefecture on, on podcasts in, in English usually. So this has been yeah. amazing. And also <laughs> we do have to actually visit yeah, Yamanaka one day. Um, yeah. It's just we're this waiting book for has you. made the ripple effect to the rest of the world. And so thank you so much, Hannah. And thank you. And thank you, everyone. And this was our discussion with Hannah Kyoshner, who is the author of Water, Wood, and Wild Things, Learning Craft and Cultivation in a Japanese Mountain Town. See you next time.